Hello! Welcome to Why Not Both, the podcast all about how our multiple passions and interests shape our identity and our lives. My name is Pam Schaefer, and I am a musician and therapist in Los Angeles, and I also happen to be your host. This podcast is produced by Laura Studeris, and for this season, we've partnered up with Under the Radar magazine. If you like what you hear, you can hang out with us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at WNB, the podcast. And if you really, really like what you hear, please support us on Patreon. We are under Why Not Both podcast. When you join our Patreon, you get a whole bunch of really cool behind the scenes stuff and you get to chat with us. And that's pretty awesome. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you enjoy our interviews. For this episode, we got to chat with Katherine Davies, aka The Anchoress. We got to talk all about her new album that just is coming out now, and her work as a producer, and her work as a writer, and a touring member of Simple Minds. She basically kind of does it all. It's not, why not both? It's more like, why not do everything? I hope that you enjoy our chat. Welcome to Why Not Both. Thank you for having me. <laughs> we are here with Catherine, and I'm very excited to be talking to you because it's been quite a while. I know, I'm terrible. I was juggling so many things that I, this is my excuse. <laughs> the conversation about why not both, why not everything, and then we will never speak. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I, I started the podcast and I'm like, haha, an excuse to talk to all of my friends about all of the things that they do. And all of the reasons why they haven't called you lately. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's it's like, there is that meme about like, that adulthood is essentially being like, oh my gosh, it's so good to see you. Do you want to have coffee? Yeah, I'm free on Tuesday. Oh, I'm not free on Tuesday. And then that, that cycle just completes until until the end. I think that's that's the great thing about kind of modern technology though, isn't it? Because you can still have that communication without having to schedule it necessarily a face-to-face. -face, exactly really really difficult to prioritize because I'm such a workaholic <laughs> yes yes whenever people are like oh do you want to hang out I'm like <laughs> this is maybe an LA thing I sometimes I'm like do you want to co-work <laughs> do you want to be on our laptops not speaking but in the same physical space no I don't think that's an LA thing unless I have co-opted that without realizing I think that's just a hyper-focused kind of um highly uh what's the word i'm thinking of when you're very um you're very attuned to just the end products yes uh, goal driven yeah i think so well, i have a lot of anxiety about doing things that don't necessarily have an end outcome um mm. which is terribly unhealthy but um, <laughs> <laughs> at least i recognize it step one there we go you're like the first step is recognizing you have a problem with productivity the second step is never doing anything about it <laughs> <laughs> I was like somewhere in there you apologize to someone and then just keep working on your projects <laughs> so I guess that leads into the question of like what do you do and is there a better question to ask than what what do you do well I guess kind of the main thing that people probably know me for is my musical projects um which is the anchoress which is a sort of alter ego moniker mm -hmm. in the vein of I guess St Vincent etc I I didn't want to use my given name mm -hmm. project because I wanted to have a little bit of distance between myself yes. and the work that I put out there so most people will know me for the music that I make as the anchoress um, and a lot of those mm -hmm. people will know me through 
um, the collaborative work that I've done with Manic Street Preachers, although mm -hmm. I know that's not such a big thing over in the States. Um, they've never kind of broken through in the same way that they have over here, but I work with those guys a lot. Mm -hmm. And then I've also, for the last five years, was a member of Simple Minds mm -hmm. um, and kind of sort of travelled the world with them. So I was juggling that with my own music at the same time. Oh my goodness. Um, and then before that, um, I did my PhD in um, literature and wrote a book. And that's sort of been a kind of less prominent, I guess, thread over the last five years, just because there are only so many hours of the day. Right. <laughs> since I stopped touring um, with Simple Minds last summer, that's certainly something that's come to the fore again. Mm. Uh, and I think that's really nice about, so I guess what the theme of the podcast is, is why not both, or rather mm -hmm. why not everything. <laughs> both, both suggests only two options, and two is not enough to keep my brain satisfied. Um, true, true, but it was very catchy, right? But it's the way I think that things take prominence at different points in your life, and that's certainly been the case with my quote-unquote career so far, and that there'll be points in the year where something is completely taking over and then the other two or three things that I'm doing might just fall back for six months or eight months or a year or whatever um so it's just the you know different things kind of taking prominence at different moments I was gonna say I'm really curious now that you had written the PhD is it that you're what are you doing in the sphere of academia now that you aren't touring that you said that that kind of had a resurgence I was like are you doing a postdoctorate or what I was like what happened there well, I'm actually teaching one day a week, um, which is something I never envisaged going back to. Um, but I'm teaching on a master's program, um, partly because I, for many complicated reasons, couldn't see touring for nine months of the year as a sustainable way of living mm -hmm. if I wanted to have any kind of balance in my life. Right. Um, and I'm really lucky and really privileged that I have that kind of education and qualifications to fall back on because obviously. I need only work that one day a week in order to make enough money to make it feasible to be creative the rest of the time. And mm -hmm. I'm enormously educationally privileged to do that. But that was always kind of part of the game plan. Um, in the, even just doing the PhD enabled me to make my first album because I couldn't have afforded to have done that mm -hmm. had I not been being paid to do my PhD, which right. I, again is... Right a very unusual situation to be in here to you know to get a research grant to get a scholarship to do that um right. but I've always kind of juggled things hand in hand one has always fed into the other so the PhD enabled me to start making music in the first place and that's so fascinating because a lot of people I've spoken to in the U.S. and then in other countries about this relation of what people perceive as a day job and that people have shame around having a day job as opposed to not making money from music. But it sounds like for you, you got to use a passion in your day job that then funded your music. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it was so programmatic that I planned it, but it, it was sort of a case of I did my first degree and then I got a scholarship to do my master's and then mm. got offered the opportunity to do my PhD and I was going to move up to Cambridge to, do, to follow my supervisor there. But then ended up realising that I could take this money that they were offering me and and stay in London and kind of put together a musical project at the same time and and thought well I can either go get a job and work <laughs> five right. days a week or I can really you know focus on the PhD and 
probably you know maybe work two days a week on it and the rest of the time be doing music and be getting paid for that so it just sort of seemed like a no-brainer for me right in worlds and in an industry I think that really favors people who come from moneyed backgrounds which I don't at all um it was the only way for me to make music you know it it wasn't possible for me to do right. that otherwise well um, because you so, also you produced the first album as well right I co-produced the first album yeah amazing (laughs) that was that was something that I could only do having being time rich Mm. and and that was what the PhD kind of allowed for me was that time richness that sense of having the space to think about things having the time to be creative and I think that's so difficult if you have a nine-to-five job yeah because then mentally I mean even if a job isn't that mentally taxing you are still present at a job uh at least I'd hope you are <laughs> like when you're there <laughs> and so it does use some of your bandwidth that then when you get home it's like okay you might need kind of like a recovery period and then work on something creative um yeah, I mean even fast forwarding four years on from that to um when I was touring super heavily with Simple Minds and trying to make the second record at the same time I would have you know my mini kind of studio set up with me that I would be working on planes I'd be working in airport lounges I'd be mm-hmm. working in hotels but there are limits to what you can do yes both in terms of the practicalities of what you can take with you but also your bandwidth your mental bandwidth when yeah. you're focused on on this other very demanding um you know very kind of energy zapping job you know it's people think oh you just pop on stage for three hours each night but it's so much more than that Um, well yeah that concept of time richness that you brought up too like I can't imagine getting into really deep focus on something that you were producing while you're in like an airport lounge after maybe the night before being on stage for three hours no I mean what I would do is I would stack up loads of kind of editing work or comping work as I call it Mm-hmm. So I, in, mm-hmm. in any of the gaps I had kind of in between legs of tours or whatever, I would just accumulate a whole load of recorded material that I then wanted to sift through and edit. Um, there were occasions when I would kind of demo vocals who do rough vocals or, um, you know, people would be sending me stuff to kind of import into sessions and I'd work it on it if we had like a day off or something. But on the whole, it was a lot of editing work. Oh my goodness. That's, uh, to be honest, that's my least favorite part of working on my own production is I'm like, I recorded all these wonderful vocal tracks. And I was like, I have to sort through all of these vocal tracks. No, it's my favorite thing. I see, this is why I love production. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite thing is getting so fully immersed (gasps) in a task like that, that hyper-focus that you have. That is so funny. I love the recording part. And then I can, I guess it's, it's mainly my vocals that I hate editing. I'll, I'll edit other things that I recorded, but hearing my own voice that much after a while, I'm like, are you still singing, Pam? (laughs) I think you have to kind of evolve. If you're working with your own voice, you kind of evolve a certain detachment over the years. And I I guess I'm just so used to it now. I'm just like, yeah, that's shit. That's shit. It's, I just, I really enjoy the process. I, I, I can just be objective about it. That's so interesting. I, I think I might I might err on the side of uh, I'm very hard on myself during vocal takes. <laughs> you have to think of yourself as another person, though, when you're kind of assessing and, and editing together a vocal. It's just it's, it's not you. You have to dissociate. That would be my big tip. Um, but, but I think 
always been like that. It's always been, you know, I didn't really ever want to be a performing artist. I wanted to make records. And then you ended up on a Simple Minds tour. Yeah. <laughs> what what happened? happened? Uh, that's a long story. How did that happen? Um, well, I was co-writing on um, for another project called The Dark Flowers, working with mm-hmm. a producer and writer, Paul Statham. He's an amazing songwriter. He's worked with everyone from Kylie to Dido. He's a really big pop writer. And he had this kind of project. Um, we've just actually finished a second record for this too, um, where I've written, co-written five songs with him for that. And it's a dark country project. Ooh. Utterly bizarre. But I had written, as I say, a couple of songs for this project with him. And then Jim Carr from Simple Minds had heard because he was also involved in this it was a kind of big supergroup project it was like pete murphy from bauhaus kate mm-hmm. havoc shelly paul from alicia's attic um there was so many great people involved in it um and he just happened to hear the, the tracks that i'd co-written um and i think he saw a little video of me mm-hmm. kind of messing around with paul statham that we'd recorded and um then i sort of got a phone call basically saying what are your plans for next year? Because when you're talking a tour that's this big, mm-hmm. it's planned kind of 18 months in advance. Right. I would say. Um, and it, yeah, it just kind of spiraled from there. We met for breakfast one day, had a chat. Um, you know, it was all very kind of non-committal at that point. It was like, let's get in the room and play and see how it feels. Mm-hmm. And I'd never done anything like that before. Um, I think my dad had just died. It was a really odd time in my life. I think normally I would have straight away gone, oh God, no, I hate traveling. I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was very much in the kind of saying yes to things. Life is really short. Right. Um, Yeah. And then the the next four years, (laughs) (laughs) taking more planes than anyone who has a ridiculous fear of flying should take oh. which culminated in an Australian tour where we would be taking a plane sometimes twice a day oh my god <laughs> yeah because Australia is huge and everything's really dispersed I mean by the end of it I just had no fear of flying at all it was just like getting on a train for me it was just... there you go desensitization absolutely <laughs> yeah it's a lot of air miles <laughs> a oh lot of my miles. gosh so how many tours did you end up going on if it was over four years um so we did the first one was quite a long stretch and that was sort of from I was up in Glasgow from the December of the previous year and then I think mm-hmm. we ended up going right through to the end of May mm-hmm. so it was about five months and oh, then wow. we had summer dates and then I think we did an arena tour the year after that was much shorter because obviously the bigger the, the shows mm-hmm. the shorter mm-hmm. the tours are and I'm trying to think I think it was about four tours in the end. Sometimes they just kind of meld into each other, like you'll be doing a European tour and then that will kind of melt into sort of summer festival dates. Oh my so God. Hard, hard to say where one kind of ends and one begins. But the last, the last year that I did with them was, it, it just got so crazy because I was juggling so many things. Mm-hmm. I was playing with the Manic Street Preachers. I think I did a show at Wembley Arena. Oh my God. They drove me straight to the airport. I flew straight to Slovenia, where I then did a show with Simple Minds. Flew straight back, did mad things like had a show in Manchester with Simple Minds, got up at five in the morning to get a train down to London to make a video with the Manics. 
um, to then do a show in the evening at the Roundhouse of Simple Minds. And it all just started to be a case of this is too much for one person to physically yeah. do. That's what I was wondering is that I was like, that sounds genuinely exhausting. I mean, even just one of them would be exhausting, I yes. think. Yes, yes. But obviously when you're being offered these incredible opportunities, both for your own music, but also being a part of something amazing and learning so much from these guys, is it's very hard to say, well, you don't say no, you don't want to say no. Of course, of course. I just imagined you being kind of like, shuttles about like a little doll <laughs> just like here you go fling <laughs> like, i think I, I was fairly physically broken by the end of it i'd forgotten how to sleep uh, <laughs> oh. and, and no one really talks about the realities of that i think we all kind of hush it up because you know obviously there are so many amazing aspects of touring and that life and you know i'm so super grateful to have been offered the opportunity but at the same time that does not erase the very real physical and mental toll that that takes on you when you are doing six shows a week in in five different countries um, it sounds like magically disorienting to me yeah it, it's it has, it has a huge effect on your brain chemicals it took me a long time to come down from that in terms of adjusting to normal life um you know it had a huge impact on my life as well you, you know it, i think when it's a man touring perhaps there is a little bit more understanding that um you know a, a guy will go off and travel for his work etc but right there's perhaps more cultural pressure i think to be present and more at home i mean it got to the point where i hadn't cooked for four years at one point <laughs> i have no such excuse as touring i'm like what is cooking <laughs> i bought a house i think a couple of months before i left on the first tour and it was so ridiculous like i don't i think i used the cooker twice um in four years <laughs> And I see it time and time again, the the casualties of, you know, even just, I say even, you know, for the crew as well. They're in exactly mm -hmm. the same situation, leaving families behind, etc. Mm -hmm. well, so Go on. I think there is a reason why crews are predominantly male. Um, you don't get a lot of women on the road. Um, uh -huh. There are bigger questions about, you know, what we're prepared to, to put up with, what we're prepared to sacrifice, I guess. Well, and that's interesting that structurally, because it makes sense in some ways that it's like the same crew the whole time, because then everybody knows what they're doing. You end up developing a good team. And I was like, I wonder if in some ways it could be because the band members can't, you can't shift out a band member, but it's like almost if the crews could work on shifts in different places. <laughs> oh yeah. And the crew works so much harder than the, you know, the band, they're, they're doing crazy long days. Sometimes, you know. 18 19 20 hour days i have enormous <laughs> admiration for what they do it's insane um absolutely insane um wow. i guess we're, we're sort of talking in a way about the two extremes if we think about the theme of the podcast is that we're talking about jobs that are so all-consuming that they leave no space for anything else and then also trying to juggle several of those jobs <laughs> that are all-consuming it's like Hmm. In hindsight, Catherine, why do you think that didn't quite work out? <laughs> You're like, hold up, I think I might have played myself. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I regret none of it. I think, you know, it's so important to kind of take opportunities and, and try things and try different ways of living and, you know, have a lot of great experiences. And, and I've seen, well, I actually haven't seen many countries. I've traveled to many countries. <laughs> 
I was technically there. Seen nothing. I mean, you know it's bad when you fly to Milan and you don't even like leave your hotel. Oh, you haven't got time. Well, and I'd also imagine um, sometimes you're eating, like, I I was thinking about that, like, being on tour, that you're eating odd foods, sleeping at weird times, like, the only consistency then really probably would be being on stage, like, at least that's reliable. Yeah, that's exactly it, you've nailed it. The show show is the highlight of the day, not only because it's the show, but also because it's that consistent moment where you know what to expect. Yes, yes. And, And you know what's expected of you as well. Yes, you're like, okay, I know this bit. <laughs> this is <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I love being on stage with those guys. It's just, Aww. you know, it, that made it all just worth it. All of the not sleeping, all of the, you know, traveling and being in planes and not wanting to be in planes. And <laughs> Once you're on stage, you're like, okay. Well, I, I loved seeing live photos of you from that, that time because you look genuinely, like, so happy. <laughs> it's all the PVC. <laughs> <laughs> How could you not be happy being glam and PVC? Well, what other job is where the uniform is PVC? Uh, <laughs> let's not ponder that. There are some <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait, I know the answer to this one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is the next part of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and for your fourth career. <laughs> Well, it has been suggested. That's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> I am quite bossy. Um, oh my gosh. Well, that makes you a good producer in a way. <laughs> like, you know what you want. <laughs> you know how to get there. <laughs> That's a nice segue. Um, yeah, I mean, and that has, and obviously coming off tour has enabled me to focus much more on, you know, the production and going back into the studio and, and working with other artists and bands, which is, you know, where I started and what I, I genuinely love doing. And oh. I just see life as a kind of evolving, unraveling ball of wool. And it's like, this is the next bit of focus for me. And I don't know, you know, how long that will last. And maybe I'll mm-hmm. go back out on the road again in a couple of years. But but for the moment, I I want to be more, you know, based in one location, a bit more static for a while. Yeah. Well, and especially I liked what you said about that you're kind of back where you wanted to be in because I thought of, you know, your work with the Mannix and your work with Simple Minds, it is kind of like bringing someone else's vision to life. But when you're in the studio as a producer for someone else, like what is that like to kind of bring their vision to life? I mean, I just find that endlessly rewarding. I mean, I I think that's probably why I, I like also collaborating on stage with with other bands as well it's it's really nice to have the pressure taken off of you where when you're an, an artist in your own right as well I think there's a lot of and you have that single focus and everything's on your shoulders it's it's just really lovely to work with other people on their projects and bringing their vision to life because it's not just all about you and unless you're a massive narcissist <laughs> none of us want to spend all of our time thinking about ourselves well I certainly don't. I, I, I don't I feel though I quite like my own company after a while I'm like okay this is a closed loop <laughs> exactly and it's just nice even from on that social aspect of just working with with other people as well you know having having someone else in the studio just having a different point of view and there's nothing that I like better than finding myself at the end of the day realizing how much I've learned from working mm. worked with before um especially if it's you know uh, one of the kind of younger songwriters coming in 
um, and just feeling like really inspired by this kind of different perspective that I hadn't thought about before, or they might be playing me some artists that I've not heard of. Um, shock horror, I don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's just really, really great. And that kind of brings me back around to a point that you made earlier about this kind of almost shame that people have. If you don't make enough money from this one single thing, then you're considered a failure. But I just think there's, there's so much value to be had in constantly not only broadening your horizons from that single focus say that traditionally one would be thought of as a success if you made enough money from your one artist project but what you're doing is really limiting yourself in terms of your creative growth too because mm -hmm. you're not inviting any new influences into that sphere naturally mm -hmm. when you're working with that you know as because i'm recording other artists co-writing for other artists or other projects I'm constantly nourishing and feeding this side of myself that was what led me to want to create in the first place oh. and I think that a lot of artists kind of fall into that trap of not they get writer's block because they don't realize that you've got to keep feeding the beast <laughs> <laughs> that makes complete sense and I think that's really beautiful that in a way that you pointed out that you're learning it sounds like also a lot of other people are learning from you that but through the process you're learning through them as well like it's you're enriching their work and therefore enriching then what you end up producing well if you think about when we're teenagers it's a very natural state to be in we're like sponges we're absorbing all this new music for the first time listening to all these influences that all become foundational to, to what we want to do mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. if you stop doing that the moment that you get any kind of success where you stop exposing yourself to you know different perspectives and I've just found that to be a really great accidental side benefit of of the production work and the songwriting work that's that amazing. constantly just going oh my god that's great I hadn't heard that <laughs> I'm gonna basically it's like I'm magpieing from all of these different people uh -huh. <laughs> they don't realize this they don't realize this but but that's what being creative is if you look at all of my favorite artists like bowie kate bush etc there's a lot of magpieing going on i like, mm -hmm. I like that you just made magpie a verb yeah it's it's, it's my new verb the magpieing you know, some people can kind of cast it as plagiarism, etc., or drawing influence from cultures or um, artists that uh, they've not originated the idea. But I just think, you know, we live in a postmodern world, and it's that to me is an integral part of the process. I I don't see that as problematic. I was gonna say I don't. I mean, I guess if we were, you know, jettisoned back several thousand years, then it might be a good idea to think of some original ideas. Um, but at this point in time, there's so many ideas germinating everywhere. It's like, how do you define even an idea as like being like, oh, this is a singular original idea? Exactly. I've had some interesting conversations with people about the band, the 1975. And I know I'm not their target demographic. <laughs> they're my, one of my favorite bands at the moment. And a, and a lot of the, the arguments against them that you'll hear from people who are slightly older, um, music journalists, etc., mm -hmm. is like, they're really derivative this is in excess this bit is prince you know this is scritty polity or whatever and it's almost like this kind of difference in mindset about what constitutes originality and to me they're melding all these things together mm -hmm. 
a whole mm-hmm. new generation of teenagers that have no fucking clue who Scrissy Felicity are. <laughs> or, or haven't, or in excess, and all of, all of, and it's, I just find it quite depressing that they're being kind of denigrated for doing essentially what the Beatles did. Right, right. Which again, is that, we're back to the magpieing again. You know, well, they, there's, there's value to be had when you can actually collate older things into a new thing that people are really excited about. Exactly. And at the end of the day, the, the proof is in, is it a great song? Right. Um, is it an exciting song? And I, I think that what they're doing is probably the, the most interesting thing that any band is doing currently. I feel that way of, uh, who was it? There was a music journalist that like shamed Billie Eilish for not knowing who, I think it was Van Halen. I was just like, I feel like it was like, it was definitely in that genre of that a, an interviewer was annoyed that she didn't know who they were. And I was like, wh- why would she? Like, why? <laughs> I'm not even sure that I've heard any Van Halen. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, why would she? And also, why... Why would a younger artist have to know this catalog? And how would they know that catalog? And why is it relevant? If they're making good music, like, why? Why would you have to be like, oh, no, you don't know every single band that existed? No, although I do encourage my students, certainly, to try and... I mean, I guess this is where the PhD kind of comes in. It's like that kind of research-focused approach to being creative. If you look at all the great mm-hmm. authors, it's it's very unlikely that I think I can think of anybody that hasn't written something impeccable that hasn't taken that approach of studying the genealogy studying the great studying the classics Mm. I guess I must have somehow transposed that onto my approach to music and that yes I did feel like it was my duty to go back and listen to you know Patti Smith, Bowie, Kate Bush, The Beatles to explore the cast you know like the classics mm. penguin classics of music essentially <laughs> did that um did that inform you as the anchoress or did that inform like just in general um I think in general really it's just that idea of if you want to be good at something you need to study those that have been good at it before gotcha so it's, you know the same as literature if you want to be a great writer you've got to go back and look at read and study the great literature well and it's it's interesting I was talking to someone else about the philosophy of learning and then unlearning it's almost like you have to go through and learn all of that stuff but then while you're creating if that's too much in the forefront of your mind it might actually kind of dampen your creativity so in some ways you have to then toss it out while you're doing it (laughs) and then in the editing process put it back in (laughs) yeah absolutely completely agree it's like know it all and then forget about it and then Mm -hmm. try and be spontaneous but know that that is in your grounding and your foundations subconsciously. Yes. Yes. And how do how do people find you like in regards to co-writing and production and things like that? I mean it's all sorts of different routes really. Sometimes I'll approach people that I think are really interesting and I want to work with. Um so there's um uh an artist at the moment that I approached she had split with her band. Band that she was with and I knew that she wanted to do some solo stuff I sent her a track that I was kind of half finished and said like I think this this could really work for you if you'd be interested in kind of writing something a top line over the top of it um what do you think and then she came in for a day and it really works nice. um, so, so yeah sometimes it will be a bit kind of like I kind of stalk them on Twitter <laughs> um 
<laughs> because honestly, I want to work with people that inspire and right inspire me and challenge me. Um, I think particularly for me, I wanted to work with other women in the industry because I feel that there's a real lack of safe spaces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You hear a lot about bad experiences with producers etc and you know obviously something I can bring to the table as well as my technical abilities is that kind of empathy to know what it's like to be the only woman in the room yeah but I haven't exclusively just worked with with women um you know sometimes people are like say for the co-writing people have approached me like with Paul Statham and Dark Flowers projects um it's all quite organic usually um there's lots of different kind of routes into into working with me but I think for for a lot of people it's just about them knowing that I'm I'm there and available because Mm -hmm. they might know me more prominently as oh you're the person that duetted with the Mannix or Mm -hmm. and they won't know what I do production wise right and so they might think that you're on tour all the time and you're like wait surprise I'm back to being a studio rat (laughs) Yeah, so, I, th- I, you know, part of, I think, what will happen over the next few years is just making that kind of more prominent part of what people know me for. And that mm-hmm. takes time. I understand that you've got to kind of earn your, earn your stripes. Well, and I like what you said of providing, uh, providing a safe space, because it's true that being the only woman in the room ranges anywhere from awkward to dangerous. Um, but I have also heard from non-binary and male artists that working with female producers is very different because we probably have had that experience of being anywhere from awkward to dangerous so we really foster having a safe space in the studio <laughs> yeah and I uh, you know I don't want to make that necessarily like a USP but I hope that that is um a, an, a, an attraction for people and if they were thinking about working with me uh, you know as as well as my you know <laughs> what I've done before and, and and the success that it's had hopefully Exactly. I loved, I worked recently with another friend of mine and she was doing the vocal production on a song that I was working on. And she had set up the studio with like little fairy lights and a color scheme and all of this stuff. Like she took a photo of me in kind of the middle of what she, she'd made like, she'd essentially set designed for me to record. Mm-hmm. And it's so made, important though, isn't it? To kind of, I think that something that the best producers understand is that it's 90% psychology. Yes, yes, she made me feel so happy. I just moved in my chair. Um, but she made me feel so happy and so at ease that then like I tracked the vocals super fast and then I mean obviously I came to her because her her vocal editing work is phenomenal and just flawless. Um, but I felt so good tracking there that she was like, "Oh, well you just made my job easier." And I was like, "Well, you made my job really easy and really lovely. I, can I move in?" <laughs> like, but also paradoxically, it can you can want to work the other way too depending upon what the topic of the song is and I've certainly been in situations where if it's, you know, you want to cultivate a kind of it sounds terribly sadistic, but if you want to cultivate a kind of mood of anger or um whatever the, the kind of lyrical focus is uh-huh. you might want to get an artist to talk about something that's quite difficult and uncomfortable um that they've experienced and then get them into that psychological headspace too so i think it's just about it's a little bit kind of method acting isn't it to some extent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well yeah because if you are acting in the song you know if someone is i guess like in some ways some people are better actors than others because like how do you access that emotion that sparked the song in the first place 
Well, this is why I say it's 90% psychology. I think, I think as a producer as well, especially if you're working on a project long term, part of your job is to kind of almost, um, it's a bit like a midwife, isn't it? In terms mm. of it, bringing it into the world and knowing that there's going to be that tricky phase where the band or the artist is going to be like, do you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do it. There's always that point in the project where you're mm-hmm. like, this is shit. You know? <laughs> And knowing having the experience and the wisdom to work through that moment and knowing what to say to people when you can see that they're visibly tired knowing when to make people get take breaks get some food you know really basic stuff that when you point it out is so obvious but yes isn't always I can tell you that obvious in some of the working studios that I've been in Yes. And I, when you were speaking, I, I had it in the back of my mind that I thought, well, what do you do when you're the producer for yourself? How do you know when to push yourself and when to be like, oh, hold up. I think I need to actually have a biscuit. I think that is more difficult. I mean, I've just I finished my second record not that long ago as the sole producer. And that was a very different experience in that I had to rely so much on my own judgment. And uh-huh. I, I did go to... Um, outside mixers for the mixing stage because I needed that second pair of ears so I was Mm -hmm. so lucky to work with David Ringer who um, produced and mixed most of the Mannix records and also Mario McNulty who's worked with Bowie for years Wow! Um, and that was invaluable because I I knew them both pretty well personally and I trusted their ears and I trusted that they would tell me if I needed to go back and redo anything right Right. Because, I, because there was a point in the project where I lost confidence in myself because it's very hard when you're in a hall of mirrors and you've got nobody else kind of bolstering you and um, no one to bounce off, really. Um, yeah, that's that's what I was wondering because I, I encounter that when I'm producing my own work is that there's always a point in a song where I just go, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> I'm just kind of looking around like there's no one else here. I have no idea if this sounds good or bad. Is this a mess? I don't know. I think it's about trusting your own judgment, isn't it? And that's an accumulation of confidence that happens over time. But also maybe having some informal kind of people that you can play things to. And knowing that that doesn't demand a production credit. (laughs) 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 Um, Unless it's a man that walks into a room. I feel that famous Lana Del Rey quote, isn't there? It's like a man walks into a room and suddenly he's got 30% of the publishing. Hashtag not all men. Uh, Just the one that walked in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Uh, That one man just wandering around studios collecting publishing rights. (laughs) But it is about having, you know, that pool of people that kind of trusted ears. um, Yes. Yes. Knowing when to go to them and not constantly deferring to other people's judgment and and cultivating that sense of your, your own barometer of whether or not something is good um otherwise you do need to work with the producer yes <laughs> and not everyone's a producer and that's okay uh, that's okay too I think it's again one thing I learned from working with with Mario McNulty um and he came out on one of the tours that we were on in Australia he was actually out there with um Sterling Campbell Mm-hmm. We also played with Bowie um, and Sterling was playing drums with B-52s on that tour and I had so many great chats with them just about kind of Bowie's ethic and the way that he works and just this sense of you do not have to do everything <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
if you are trying to engineer the record, produce the record and mix the record and write the songs and record all the parts, you are not going to make the best record. And Bowie did not do that. He, he understood that you needed to bring in the best people who were specialists in those particular areas. And that's not taking away from your autonomy as an artist. And I, I, that was a real revelation for me to kind of have someone say that to me, that I did not need to sit there spending 12 hours editing the fucking drums on my own. And <laughs> be able to say that I was the producer of the record. And although I did do that on about half the tracks on the album, it was really great to hear that from these guys that have got, you know, so much more experience than I have and kind of basically say to me, do you know what? You don't have to do it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was killing myself trying to do everything, <laughs> thinking that was the only way that I deserved the credit, um, which is mad, right? Well, yeah, it's kind of the idea of like, in a way, I remember reading an interview with Grimes that was similar where it's almost like, this feeling of like that you have to do every single thing in order to prove that it's yours in order to prove that you did it. And it's like, I'm so glad that someone validated that you, you actually don't. And also to encourage you to like trust others that there are other people who specialize in this and that's literally their job (laughs) And, and to trust them to do their job. Well, it was hearing and being reminded that, you know, these these big legendary producers like Tony Visconti, he's not saying they're editing his own fucking drums. You know, um, right. Mario started out as, as, as his um, engineer and, you know, he was editing his drums and just being reminded that, you know, these big names, these guys, they're not doing that because they don't, right. I guess, have the same, um, you could either call it chip on your shoulder or insecurity about being undermined. Right. Um, I think there's there's a lot of complex issues there, which are about you know um, sexist presumptions when women are involved in audio, um, yes. our own perfectionism, our own ridiculous high standards, and our own sense of needing to prove ourselves. <laughs> with each other. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this really should be called "Why Not Everything?" because that exactly what you were saying that it's like. I feel like in a lot of ways that the female producers I know are in the same boat that it's exactly what you're describing that it's like we have to then do it better we have to do every single little thing to prove that like yes we really are the producer and what I learned from making the second record is that what makes it better what makes the best record is getting the best mixes in and why uh-huh. on earth would I think that I can mix a record better than Dave Ringo or Mario McNulty <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's just insane and no one else would do that um so it's been a really great kind of learning process about being comfortable with myself uh offloading tasks to other people like any mm-hmm. producer would and that is what they do <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's been um now I feel like I, I kind of know how it works definitively yeah uh, until the next record when I forget it all over again <laughs> Well, and it's interesting also given your artist name because, it, I mean, I might also be coming from the point of view of like an expired Jewish girl from the Valley. Not that I'm expired, just more the Judaism bit uh, <laughs> that <laughs> that I had to look up what an anchoress was and I was fascinated by it. And it's interesting that now you're talking about almost kind of like less isolation, but is the concept of an anchoress, is that more well known in the UK or if people asked about your name? 
No, I don't think people have a bloody clue what it means. <laughs> a lot of people think it's something to do with anchors and having a ship or something. You're like, uh, surprise! <laughs> but you're right, it's that kind of clever in-joke about that kind of monastic kind of lifestyle. You know, the, the anchoress was basically a kind of female proto-nun who would be bricked up and locked away, literally bricked into the side building of a church. Yeah. where they would dedicate their life to to worship and prayer and contemplation um and their only contact with the outside world would be through this tiny little kind of portal where food would be passed in and out etc and waste etc etc and for me when i was making the first record that felt like my life um <laughs> it felt like a bit of a kind of apt metaphor for my creative process and it is really interesting that it's evolved so much beyond that to be much more sociable yeah it was like we don't have to brick you in i just imagine taking a sledgehammer and being like oh come on out it's okay <laughs> yeah i'll have to change my name to something else <laughs> <laughs> the liberated anchoress because i was i when i looked them up i did find that the practice to be fascinating oh god we, it's a rabbit hole you can really fall down and uh, i think for many um women who are very kind of hyper focused on the particular tasks so there's a lot of resonance there for that kind of dedication to a single thing um right. i don't think you have to be religious to kind of find that to be something that resonates with you well and in a way also like i was thinking about when you when you said now that they were bricked in that it's like that's the only way to make it so that then there weren't other obligations placed on them exactly yeah <laughs> I mean, the other kind of draw for me was Julian of Norwich, um, who is one of the most famous anchoresses. Mm -hmm. She wrote the first sort of book in English, um, so she is like the very first um, one of the one of the founders of literature in, in oh, a way wow. in 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 England as well. So there, there was that kind of parallel with my kind of literary interests too, and her life is fascinating. Mm -hmm. If you ever get to sort of look up her story. I was like, ah, oh, yes, another internet wormhole. Tell me more. <laughs> I really highly recommend it. And um, this manuscript was lost and preserved um, and copies were made. And then this kind of group of women kind of ended up taking it over to France at one point, And then they thought it was lost. And it's an incredible story uh, about the survival of this record of her time and her kind of divine revelations that she had aka probably what we would now call some kind of form of psychosis uh, yeah it was just like basically this woman has been walled into a building so i'm like okay <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah it might send you a little bit mad um <laughs> so there's many levels in which you know people can kind of take away whatever they like from the name um but for me primarily it was just about putting a little distance between myself and my musical output and again you know the title of the first record was partly about that too that kind of mocking the idea that women can only write in the confessional mode you know this mm -hmm. was like, um, confessions of a romance novelist mm -hmm. that, that collision of the fictive and the confessional is like well how can something be both true and fictional at the same time um and i like that idea because i think that contradiction is at the heart of what i was writing for that album it was about constructing these artificial confessions these artificial cathartic yes. moments i didn't want people to know where the truth began and where the fiction ended and that i think I, that's one of the reasons i do love that album by the way and i love i love that cleverness about it because it 
similar things happen and I'm, I'm sure they happen to other artists, but people have asked me, there's a song I'm releasing probably I like Knockwood, hopefully this year, cause I'm working on the video for it. Uh, but the co-producer on it asked me, well, what inspired that song? Like, it's so sad. And I, I literally said to him, I saw a reflection of a cloud in a puddle. And he was like, what? He's like, you wrote the song about a puddle? <laughs> I was like, well, not literally. The song's not about a puddle. That, well, I mean, you could write a song about a puddle. Um, but <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it spun this whole narrative in my head, seeing the the image of the cloud reflected in it. And so it like, but it's like, is any of it true to life? I mean, probably there's elements of things that I felt about things that are in the song, but is it like a literal narrative or something? No. <laughs> That's why you can write a song. <laughs> and I think that's quite a gendered assumption, isn't it? Often that women will write diaristically. Yeah. Also, I think I remember reading something Tori Amos said in an interview once about this, but that, that that is denigrated in some way, that that is an easier mode to write in somehow. Whereas I just think that, to, you know, I think Shirley Manson from Garbage said this once, you know, to bleed really well into a song, you know, that's a great art. It's really hard yeah. to do well. And, and why should we... I think it's the same thing that we do in a lot of art forms where particular modes or particular forms are more heavily associated with women, for instance, that we will then think of that as a lesser form of expression. Right, right. Like I think about why why would a memoir necessarily be lesser if it was written by a woman than a man? Like I was just thinking about the genres that are associated. I mean, look at Anaya Sin. I know we're both big fans of her. Yes. <laughs> and, and the idea that she, you know, wasn't a proper writer because all of, you know, the majority of her published work is her diaries. And it's, so we'll look at the quality of the writing. Don't look at the form. Well, it's and like, I remember, I was going to say, I remember when we first became friends talking about her writing and not only the quality of it, but simply the way even, I think, just the way that she edited the narration of her own life and kind of crafted a narrative within her diaries that actually does hold narrative weight, which is fascinating because then she chose to live her life in a way that then she could write about it that would make a good story. I mean, I know who I'd rather read out of Henry Miller or Nyson. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I haven't even tried. <laughs> I can't. I just can't do it. It doesn't <laughs> I don't get I don't get it. But I keep trying. I even I read I read him in Big Sur to even try to get into and I loved going to the Henry Miller Library in Big Sur, like the feeling of it. Like mm-hmm. I love the feeling of what Henry was trying to get across, but um yeah, Anais Nin far and away. The version of Henry I like is the version that she writes about. Uh-huh. That's <laughs> That's who I imagine because clearly she loved him so well that it's like, of course I wanna I wanna embrace the same person, but I think you're right that I I like best her image of him. Yeah, it's not reflected in the writing. Uh-huh. <laughs> no. <laughs> get my claw, get these claws out. <laughs> yep. Or maybe it's just a testament to how blind love makes us. Mm. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I was like, why would you come on my podcast and attack me like this? <laughs> I'm sorry to any Henry Miller fans out there. 
Martin is quite obviously the superior writer. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and she also, I mean, she balanced a lot in her life as well that I think people underestimate. Yeah, and I, I wonder again if it, it's very much something that, that that women are sort of more prone to do in one with fantastic multitaskers. Um, but exactly. <laughs> Again, historically, culturally, the kind of domestic realm has always been something that's kind of fallen on women's shoulders too. So by therefore necessitates an element of juggling if you're going to pursue a creative life as well. Yes. Um, be that as wife, mother, whatever. Even if you firmly reject those roles in so many ways as she did, for instance, mm-hmm. there's still elements of it that must be ret- retained. Um, right. Well, I remember... Go on for financial economic reasons in her case i guess if you want to be very mercenary about the situation um mm-hmm. and and that's 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 tricky but i do think i i remember doing an article probably about five years ago for l magazine i think it was where they were chatting to what they were calling at the time slashers <laughs> which is <laughs> was their definition of people that juggled more than one career uh-huh and they were all women of course I mean, again, I say this partly tongue-in-cheek for people that don't know me, but it's like, I'm not sure men are just very good at doing more than one thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, you know me, and you know I'm partly joking when I say this. I'm getting people going, God, she's such a misandrist. (laughs) And and it has been scientifically proven that all of this bollocks about women's brains being more attuned to multitasking is of course, not, of course, not borne out by any phys- physiological differences in the brain. No, no, it's all socialization that, like, yeah, and then exactly. you end up, yeah, you end up through nurture. So basically, men, you need to step it up and <laughs> approve us all. And I'm sure there are countless examples of of male artists that I'm just not aware of who are juggling many jobs that's I was speaking to a male sound engineer about this phenomenon about I was asking him about another realm in which I was just like well how can I teach men to do better and he even said he's just like well this generation might be lost but the next generation you can prime he's just like by you know socializing men differently he's like by that point we'll all by necessity because of the gig economy have about five jobs anyways <laughs> there will be no job security so it'll just become normal to be juggling you know five or six things you'll just have to yeah I love because even when I asked you what you did originally when you were talking about going on tour and then you were talking about being a studio musician and then you spoke about doing your PhD I love that you casually dropped oh yeah and when I wrote an article for Elle I was just like so you're also casually also a writer oh no no I didn't write that article for Elle I participated ah. in it, but I do also do some journalism and writing as well <laughs> <laughs> Only not as often as I do the other things that I do, but I wrote wrote a piece for The Independent recently about multiple miscarriage. Um, That was that was something um, that I really wanted to write about. I've written for The Enemy occasionally. Um, And I think because I've got those skills that I've cultivated, obviously, through through my studies, Mm -hmm. um, you know, people ask me to write things. Um, even though I'm in no way qualified. <laughs> <laughs> Except through your studies and your experience. And your no, wonderful. but I mean, in terms of, you know, I'm not a qualified journalist and I always feel a bit bad about, um, always reticent about taking work, mm-hmm. writing work, because, you know, so many of my friends are journalists and I don't want to take work away from them. Oh. <laughs> officially, yeah. you know, officially qualified. Right, um, right. 
but yeah, it, it, I have found myself doing bits of writing as, as well. I mean, I've done all sorts of extra things in between records. I've, I've done things like consulted on social media because obviously I've acquired these skills through running my own social media channels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've ended up working at some management companies, going in and doing days, teaching their teams how to optimize their Facebook pages or how to use Twitter, etc. At one point, I had a little kind of strange job doing some things for Chrissy Hind. Um, this is before I joined Simple Minds, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Helping her with some IT-related things. Um, I think I've just always been one of those people that's sort of turned their hand to, to things. And because I tend to get on well with people and, mm-hmm. and because I've got... But maybe it's kind of a teaching skill, I guess, the ability to explain things to people. And that's yeah. quite valuable. Yeah, I mean, that apply, it's applicable to lots of different realms of experience then, isn't it? Right. The weirdest job I ever had, though, was when I was still at university and I was teaching elocution to two Russian pop stars. <laughs> and that was a totally random job that I got offered to another <laughs> manager. <laughs> at a big management company in London. <gasps> they brought them over from Russia where they were massive uh-huh. were hoping to launch them in the UK oh one was a goodness. more classical based artist and the other one was kind of like an emo sort of oh my god type and they were just both so intelligent and I was just blown away by them and oh. you know, I just was so impressed with them and my job was to sit with them for four hours a week and, and help them with their kind of accent and elocution and just oh my goodness yeah, I've done some really weird shit in my time. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's beautiful. Like when I, I'm honestly, I'm confused when I speak to people that have only really done one thing. I'm just like, what, what's that like? <laughs> what's... <laughs> I would be so bored. I've never had, I've never had an, a job, a normal job. I've never had a, you know, a contract to do a normal job. I've been lucky so far in my life. I worked I worked very briefly at it closed in America but a Borders bookstore like when I first graduated from college I did work at Borders bookstore and that was like I think that's the closest I've had to like a normal job. Oh we would call that like so I had a Saturday job when I was 16 I worked in a closed store over here called Wallace which is sort of a slightly high end more slightly more high end but high street store. Uh-huh. Um, and I did that every Saturday for two years. <laughs> I guess, but it's not a nine to five job, is it? It's not like a kind of Monday to Friday. No, no. I lasted, oh, I had an internship with like a marketing company that was like a, a low paid internship to see if I enjoyed marketing. And I believe I worked for them for two weeks before I was like, mm. My shortest ever job was with the BBC. I did, um, so I was about to start my master's, although I hadn't heard back about whether or not I'd got funding for it. Mm-hmm. So I was offered an um, internship at the BBC as a researcher working on one of their programmes. It was an arts programme, so it Ooh. suited me really well. I'd done a bit of TV at my university during my first degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was lucky enough to get onto the programme, which is really prestigious and everybody <laughs> wants to do it. And I lasted, I think, one day. It might have been one and a half days. <laughs> Before I thought, this is not for me um, at all. I, I was very unlucky with the person that was supervising me. Was, I think now they would call it workplace bullying. Um, it wow. Was really awful. And, I just, and then I found out that I'd got the funding 
that week for my masters and I just sent them an email and was just like do you know what this isn't right for me and I've just found out I've got funding so I'm not gonna be able to carry on over the summer so yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> my oh. mum was pretty furious with me because <laughs> when you come from a family like mine that's really working class the idea that you'd get a job at the BBC is like uh, incredible you know it would be the right and then be like JK no mm -mm. and I'm like yeah just walked out of the BBC <laughs> after like, less than 48 hours uh, I, I knew there was a reason we were friends <laughs> and I knew that I, it wasn't for me and I wasn't going to be able to maintain that um not punching this person in the face <laughs> <laughs> it was horrendous you know there is uh, there, everyone has a breaking point and Yes. That was going to be my breaking point. It was I love that you recognized it early on. You're like, nope, 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 nope. And also the fluorescent lighting in the office was just <gasps> horrendous. It gave me really bad migraines. And yes. Yeah. I'm not, I couldn't work in an office. I just couldn't do it. That was honestly, for me, that was the worst part of my graduate degree was that the classrooms had fluorescent lighting. I don't think people really realized how much um your sensory environment is so important to what you can actually manage yes i'm certain that a lot of people that end up with these kind of multiple careers juggling multiple roles there are other reasons like behind that why perhaps you don't put yourself into an environment that is repetitive or sensorily straining etc etc et and so yes. i look back now and think Ah, oh, there's a reason why I did my master's and PhD because I'm really not great at interacting with people in group situations. And you you can look back and reflect on the choices that you made that actually haven't been very intuitively right for your mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, but at the time not consciously realizing that. Yes, and being in tune with yourself at least to know that it's the right or wrong decision for you but then looking back I like what you said like looking back I'm thinking well why did I do that <laughs> which it seems obvious in retrospect that I'm like well I have ADHD and delayed sleep phase disorder so of course I have sensory issues and I'm not going to be really good with a regular schedule <laughs> like of course I would choose jobs that are more in tune with that <laughs> yeah whereas you wouldn't consciously have set up thinking I'm going to have a freelance career because of this exactly exactly it's like no I definitely chose this to play to my strengths instead of if I had to try and interact with people repeatedly at an office in fluorescent lighting and perhaps that's why a lot of creative people um are, you know are drawn to those kind of freelancing careers as well because it's something about the way our brains work differently yes Yes. And that, and that also having the courage to speak to that of, you know, cause I can imagine turning down that BBC job after one day, there must've been a part of you that was like, Oh, what am I doing? And then the other part of you is like, I must do this. <laughs> I think I've just always been really aware of my limits. Um, what I can and can't do, um, what is feasible for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, it, being di diagnosed with autism fairly young, I was always very just aware of, my strengths mm -hmm. in a very positive way but also just what was an absolutely no-go for me mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but not to see it as a negative thing to just focus on on the strengths instead and I've been supremely lucky to have been aware of that from so early I think that I was able to tailor my path to that you know and I'm the first person in my family to go to university wow um, not as if there is any precedent for any of this but it was totally the right path for me mm-hmm 
mm-hmm. because of the things that I have difficulty with. Um, and I don't talk, uh, I think I'm not actually sure I've ever spoken publicly about this before. I think it would be fairly obvious to anybody else who has ASD um, that, <laughs> that <laughs> maybe, but um, I, I just feel, um, you know, that's not at the forefront of the decisions that I've made, but it has intuitively informed the pathways that I've taken, but in a really positive way. Right. I love that you spoke to it as identifying, like identifying your strengths within it because, and also I'm so grateful that you did receive a diagnosis because I, I feel like diagnoses give people power is what I've always thought about them. Because if you don't know what's happening, you, you can't always make informed choices for yourself, even as a kid. Well, exactly for me, it just really stopped me um, blaming myself for the things that I was less good at. Right. Um, and meant that I could explain to people why, for instance, they thought I was being rude or why they were misinterpreting how I was acting or why I really loved single focus tasks. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, you know, arming yourself with that knowledge as early on as possible enables you to then tailor a path through life that, that speaks to those strengths. And, yeah. um, and I know not everybody is lucky, obviously, enough to be high functioning with that and yes at times there have been things that have been massively debilitating for me but I just try and avoid those situations right that I know will create ultimately that meltdown or stress right, um, right, right. so far I've been able to do that so far <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel that tentatively <laughs> and in a way it's so that then you can you know one so that you can feel content and comfortable and also so that you can maximize what you actually want to accomplish yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I when I started at uni, I I was signed up for one degree, and by the end of the first term, I was doing two, um, <laughs> because I knew that I would be bored shitless doing one. Um, mm-hmm. And what was right for me was to max out my my time because I need to be occupied. And a big red flag for me is being bored. Mm. I can't be bored, and I can't have too much free time. Right, right. It doesn't work for me. Um, and no, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> and while someone else looks at my schedule and thinks, my God, you're insane. Like, that's too much for one person to do. For me, my personal experience with overscheduling is that that works for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like balancing having a busy schedule with also caring for yourself, as you said, like, it sounds like almost when you were describing like the Mannix tour with then your other touring with your studio, that sounded like it was almost like too much that then it was too hard on your body, but having like figuring out that threshold of like just enough. (laughs) I I think the difference there was perhaps the physical um, toll that it took. Yeah. I haven't really factored, had that factored into a situation before where there was physical um, intolerance or mental yeah. um, kind of um, strains. So, I, and I think also the difference was the social interaction side of things. Obviously, mm-hmm. touring is not a solitary. Um, it's not a solitary. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of interaction, maybe with people that you don't know. Um, so, I think that that's a new element that I hadn't encountered so much. Mm. Um, I think just a physical and mental fatigue then perhaps changes your tolerance levels of other things right right um and and ultimately for me as an individual that's probably not sustainable over 
a five, ten year period. <laughs> no, because then yeah. I can I can imagine then you'd have to kind of like put energy into like socially masking and then interacting and then all the yeah. travel and all of that. I was like, oh, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> I got very good at finding the prayer room in the um, airports. <laughs> you are the anchoress. I love it. <laughs> it's just finding those moments to be alone. Yes. And not having constant, you know, the social interaction, I think for me, is, is the hardest thing. When it's not one-on-one, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that can be quite exhausting. Yes. Um, but I hadn't had to encounter that too much in my life before, so that was a big lesson for me to <laughs> And you're like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, oh. Why do I feel so exhausted all the time? <laughs> oh, wait, I'm having to put all this energy into this thing that drains me. Yes, yes, we live, we learn. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what advice would you give to musicians who are starting out now or other producers who are starting out now? Get a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, same, but... <laughs> have, have something, not to fall back on, not like a plan B, but have another skill set. Mm-hmm. So that you're making decisions about the projects that you work on and the things that you're saying yes to because they're right for you creatively mm-hmm. ethically or they serve you creatively they serve you in terms of growth and not because you need the money i love that i love that that was the best piece of advice someone ever gave to me was you ask yourself four questions about projects does it benefit me financially does it benefit me in terms of my creative growth does it introduce me to a new circle of people or a different experience i haven't had before i can't remember what the fourth one was but it was basically does it <laughs> criteria but if it doesn't then you are you can say no to things and i, I think do that's, think that's valuable the the power of being able to know that you can say no yeah, I think there's a big scrambling to say yes to everything now because people are so worried about losing an opportunity, but it's about taking the right opportunities. I love that of having, and I love how you framed it as that it's not something to fall back on because it sounds like your work on your PhD has actually fostered a lot of your work outside of that. Absolutely. I mean, and it's led to this really quite incredible situation right now where I'm having to only work one day a week on this master's program and that it kind of feeds both financially and creatively my music work and that's something I understand how privileged I am to do that but I worked my ass off to put myself in that position right I was gonna say like it is it's a privilege and it's also something you earned because it doesn't sound like you just kind of fell into it <laughs> yeah no. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I was consciously understanding that that is what the position I would end up in. <laughs> I know a lot of musicians that aren't in my position because they don't have that academic qualification that's right. obviously people want if you're going to, they're going to invite you to kind of teach at their institutions. So right. It's, right. Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's, not full, it's not a fallback plan. It's a parallel path is what I would say. Oh, I love that. I was like, that's the note I want to end on to have parallel paths because that is, and in a way I was just like, oh, they're parallel, but Catherine, sometimes they're perpendicular because they meet. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes a few paths together in like one big smoothie. <laughs> <laughs> have a smoothie of paths. You heard it here first. <laughs> Can't believe I'm giving career advice as food metaphors. <laughs> And do have a smoothie as well if you're touring because it will stop you getting sick. 
Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. The last I was traveling, there are these really delightful, like smashed orange and ginger smoothies that I found in the airport that are, oh, bless them. <laughs> I'd never encountered a Nutribullet. Do you have Nutribullet over there? We do. So I never knew, I never encountered a Nutribullet until I toured. And I was, by the end of it, I was mushing up like whole chunks of ginger, like <laughs> pumpkin. It was basically like my medicine. It was basically disgusting. But it was like taking kind of like a medicine shot every day. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> off all of these kind of germs that you're encountering. <sighs> yeah, so it was like the Nutribullet and also like the portable humidifiers are pretty great too. Oh my God, we could do a whole podcast about my love of humidifiers. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to revisit in the next few years. Be like, what are you up to? Tell me more about what you've discovered about humidifiers. <laughs> That's my other top tip for touring, you know, is always have humidity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even if people think you're crazy with your three humidifiers in your hotel room and you're not Mariah Carey. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you again for listening to this episode of Why Not Both? If you liked what you heard, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. You can also come hang out with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, both on Instagram and on Twitter. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print, music, and entertainment magazine and website. You can find them at www.undertheradarmag.com and feel free to support them on Patreon. Extra special thanks to our producer, Laura Studeris, who is literally a rock star. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you next episode.